All around the world, there are Christians who are suffering. Some of them are suffering because they're Christians. Their faith in Jesus Christ has caused them to be persecuted in one way or another. Some of these people have been jailed and even beaten by governments because they have publicly acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and have unashamedly admitted to being a follower of Jesus Christ. And governments that are hostile to Christianity have abused Christians and caused them to suffer in other parts of the world. Some Christians who are suffering in the world have been disowned by parents. Parents who don't understand what it means to have your sins forgiven by God because they're stuck in unbelief or adherence to other unbiblical and untrue religions. And so they're suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Some Christians are suffering around the world because they've been mocked in their university or in their dorms or in their workplace by people who believe there is no God and think it's foolish and superstitious to say that God exists and to believe that Christ is going to return someday and set up his kingdom. We live in a world that is free in many ways. You're free to believe what you want and to say what you want within limits. But that doesn't keep people from looking down on you if you believe in Christ and even mocking you for your faith in Jesus Christ. And so around the world, there are people who are suffering because they are Christians. But there are Christians who are suffering not just only because they are Christians. Some people are suffering, some Christians are suffering around the world just because they're human. They are Christians. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ But that hasn't stopped them from getting cancer and having to endure the possibility of death or the possibility of an extended life, but the need to go through difficult forms of therapy and even surgery to remove that cancer. They're Christians. They believe in Jesus Christ, but they're suffering this morning despite their faith in Jesus Christ. In other cases, there are some Christians who are about to be removed from their homes. They're about to be evicted from their homes. Not because they're Christians, but because they lost their jobs and they can't pay the mortgage or the rent any longer. And they've prayed and asked for God's help. But so far, God hasn't provided the funds that they need to stay in their home for another month. I could go on and on like this for a long time. And in fact, if you and I sat down together and tried to come up with all the ways in which people who are Christians might be suffering around the world, I think we would be there for a long time. And I think we could come up with a very long and very specific list. Christians around the world are suffering, some because they're Christians, some just because they're human. 
because we live in a fallen world and suffering is part of the deal. Some of you are Christians this morning and you're suffering too. You're in this room worshiping with us or you're watching online, but you have burdens in your heart. Some of those burdens might be known to us, to God's people. Some of you are people we've been praying for. We've been praying for God to work, to answer the problems in your life or to comfort you and lead you through the difficulties you're facing in life. But some of you have burdens that are unknown to any of us. They're very real and they're causing you to suffer, but they're in your heart. And no one or very few people are even aware of the suffering that you have. You're suffering in silence. The good news is that God has a word for those who are suffering as Christians. And actually, it's good news and bad news. God has a word for those who are suffering, who belong to Jesus Christ. But it's not the word that would automatically come to your mind or mine. And it's not a word that's really comforting when we hear it. Yes, God has a word for us in our suffering. That's the good news. But the bad news is the word he has for us is not one that we're going to like. And that's because God's word for suffering Christians is joy. God's word for suffering Christians is joy. And that's not a word that, all, all, that immediately brings us comfort in our suffering. It's not a word that causes the suffering to go away. And in fact, in many ways, it can create questions in the minds of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And as we come to James chapter 1 this morning, and we begin this series called Intentional Acts of Faith, right out of the box in verse 2, James hits us with a difficult word from God for us whenever we're suffering. And that word is joy. In fact, it's a command. God commands us to choose joy in suffering. And we see that in verse 2. Look with me, please, at what the scripture says. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. This verse begins with a command. And it's God's command to us to choose joy when we are suffering. Now first consider this word consider. The word consider is a command. And it's a word that is directed, because it's a command, at our will. Anything that's directed at the will of a person gives us a choice. We can either choose to obey the command or we can choose to ignore and even disobey the command. We have a will and that will enables us to choose whether we're going to receive the command or whether we're going to reject the command. And as James begins this letter, 
He says, consider it pure joy. He commands us from God to do something. And what is it that he commands exactly? Well, that's also contained in the word consider. Because the word consider in the original language is a word of thought. James doesn't command us to feel joy. He commands us to consider it pure joy. This this describes an intentional, mental decision. The command itself, the choice that God gives to us, is a choice of mind. It's directed at our will, but it involves choosing to think a certain way. And that's intentional, too, because God knows that he's commanding us to do something that feels wrong. When we are facing hard times in life, when we are facing discouragement, when we are facing a difficult choice where there are no good options, when we're facing financial hardship or a bad diagnosis or a loved one who's in trouble in one way or another, Getting happy about that is not our instinct. It's not human nature for us to feel automatically happy when hard times, when struggles, when suffering comes into our life in one way or another. And that's why we are told to take control of our thoughts. The command here is to consider. It means to make an intentional mental choice. And that's because it doesn't come naturally for us to think this way. It's not natural to say to yourself, it's going to make me really happy today if my boss calls me in and lays me off. That's not normal. That's not natural. That's not human nature. It's not easy or normal to tell yourself, I am pumped about getting this eviction notice in the mail or getting this bill that I can't pay. These are not normal actions for human beings, and they're not easy actions. That's why we have to be commanded to think differently about our lives. We have to be commanded to think differently than our instinctual way of thinking when we face suffering in life, when we encounter hard times. And that's why... We are hit with this command, consider it pure joy. Now, after the word consider, we come to another word. And that is, actually it's a phrase, consider it pure joy. Or in some translations, this is translated all joy. Now, Understand that this is what follows the command. It's telling us the content that we should consider in our lives. That means we should choose to think of whatever problem we're facing as something that we should respond to with with 100% joy. Not, well, the good will eventually outweigh the bad, or someday we'll all look back on this and laugh. No, God's word tells us at the very beginning of our sufferings, the very beginning of our problems, to make an intentional decision, an intentional choice, to choose to think differently, and to choose to rejoice 
over the problems that we face in life. And so God commands us to choose joy in suffering. And choosing joy is an intentional act. Choosing joy is an intentional act. But further, as we look in the verse, we find this. That there's really something important that needs to happen if you're going to be able to choose joy. And that is this. That choosing joy is part of being a Christian. Choosing joy is part of being a Christian. Following the command to consider it all joy, we find the phrase, my brothers and sisters. That tells us the audience for this command. As James begins his letter, he says, consider it, choose, make an intentional act of your will to choose joy when you're suffering. And then he adds this phrase, my brothers and sisters. Now that phrase is a comforting one. It's designed to appeal to the relationship that he has with these people who are reading his letters. But I think there's more to it than just that. James adds these words and addresses the believers as brothers and sisters in order to emphasize their common relationship with Jesus Christ. As you know, the word brothers, or sometimes it's translated brothers and sisters so that women don't feel excluded. But as you know, in the New Testament, this phrase is used, family language is used to describe Christians and their relationships with one another. And as we consider what is going on in this verse, I think this is where we need to back up and look at verse 1 in this passage. Verse 1 in this passage tells us more about the relationship that the author of this book has with the people who are reading it, or the first people who were reading it. And so back in verse 1, we were introduced to the author of this book. And we're told that his name is James. It says in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of guys in the New Testament named James. And for reasons that I really don't have time to get into this morning, I'm just going to cut right to the bottom of the page and tell you who this James is. This James is actually the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean when I say he's the half-brother? Well, remember that Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin so that God could enter into the human race A woman who had never slept with a man had a miracle happen in her womb and a human being was conceived within her by the direct act of the Holy Spirit, the creative act of God. And that meant that Christ was both divine, he always has been divine because he is God, but now he became human. He had a human mother but not a human father. Well, you know from the story that after Jesus was born, Mary, his mother, married Joseph, the man that she was pledged to marry, and they had children together. Every one of those children was Jesus' half-brother or sister. They had the same mother, but not the same father. The Bible tells us that this man, James, was one of those half-brothers of Jesus. He grew up in Mary and Joseph's household. 
He saw Jesus as his older brother and watched him as he grew into maturity. He also saw Jesus become a man. The Bible tells us that he witnessed some of Christ's teaching and miracles. And in this way, he became acquainted with the person of Jesus Christ. But notice also in verse 1 that James describes himself not as Jesus' brother, but rather he describes himself with this phrase, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The servant of God part is easy to understand. Anyone who has faith in God should consider themselves a servant of God in one way or another. And that was a common word in Judaism and in the Old Testament for people who saw themselves as or were chosen by God to be leaders, prophets, and so on. But the fact that James is said to be here a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that James had come to the place in his life where he became a believer in Christ. Where he not only saw Jesus as his big older brother, which must have been hard to do because if you have an older brother or sister, you might feel that they could do no wrong and that you couldn't live up to their reputation. Well, imagine if your older brother was Jesus and he actually was perfect, actually did do no wrong. That'd be tough, all right? And it would also be hard, a hard pill to swallow, to bow before your brother and say, you are Lord and you are God, and to know that your brother died for your sins. But all of this happened by the grace of God in James's life. And so James identifies himself as a Christian, and as a Christian leader even, when he says, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the recipients of this letter. Verse 1 goes on to say, to the 12 tribes, and then it describes them, scattered among the nations. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. This helps us understand the audience. And the phrase scattered, or 12 tribes, I should say, tells us that that James was addressing a Jewish audience in this letter. And we know from the book of Acts that James was a leader in the original church in Jerusalem. He was one of the leading figures in the church in Jerusalem. But we also know from the book of Acts that persecution came into Jerusalem from other Jewish people. As Christianity grew and spread and as the church in Jerusalem became very large, non-believing Jews began to persecute those who were part of the church. In Jerusalem, and so they scattered. They went to other places where there was no persecution. This was all part of the will of God and was necessary for the spread of the gospel message. But it must have been hard for James, one of the leaders of the church, to watch his congregation get scattered, to see his people going other places and wondering what would happen to their faith. And so he wrote this letter to try to teach them how to live for God, how to live faithfully for Jesus Christ, our Lord, even in the middle of a pagan culture. And because he knows that hard times in life are part of life, he begins this letter with the command to consider it pure joy because he wants the believers 
to take an intentional look at their lives, regardless of what they're facing. Whether they're facing persecution in these new places where they go, or whether they're simply facing the problems of being displaced from where you grew up and having to find a new vocation, a new place to live, being a foreigner in a foreign culture, or being separated from family, or going through the normal processes of life where people die, or where people are afflicted with illnesses or whatever. James does not know all of the problems that his congregation is facing out in the world, but he knows they will face problems. And so he opens his letter by saying, consider it pure joy, but then he adds the phrase, my brothers and sisters. You see, it takes faith in Jesus Christ to be able to take and obey the command in verse 2. People who don't know Jesus Christ, people who are not followers of Christ, don't have the ability, they don't have the, the, the faith to take a command, like consider it pure joy. There's no categories for this in the life of someone who is unsaved. And let me just take a minute now and address you about your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've tuned in online or you're even here this morning. And you're facing problems in life, or if you're not immediately facing one, let me just assure you, one is coming. But you're not a Christian. And you hear the words that we are to make an intentional act of the will. To choose joy, to choose to rejoice when we face problems in life. And you're saying, I don't understand this. It makes no sense to me. That's because you're not a Christian. Only by knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior can you receive this as the word of God and put it into practice in your life. And if you're not a Christian, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad you're watching. Because we exist in part to help people leave behind unbelief and come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're struggling with problems in your life, and you feel like you're drowning, and you don't know where to turn, let me invite you to turn to Jesus and put your faith in him. There is no promise, as we'll see, that your problems will get any better. They might get worse. God never promises to solve every problem for Christians. In fact, this passage tells us that we should expect one problem after another in life. But the promise of God is not that he will change your circumstances and relieve your problems. The promise of God is that he will give you the grace. He will give you the power to choose joy when you encounter problems in life. If you're a Christian, you have the opportunity to experience problems in this life as something that comes into your life by the grace of God. And so God, God's word for suffering Christians is joy, and he commands us to choose joy when we are suffering. Choosing joy is an intentional act, and choosing joy is part of becoming a Christian. But as we move forward in this passage and continue to look at what verse 2 teaches us, We need to understand that 
there are, there's a certain occasion when we need to choose joy. And that brings us to this idea, which is that choosing joy is appropriate anytime you are suffering. Looking again at verse 2, the scripture says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now this suggests two really important things. One, the word whenever suggests to us that we're going to have problems periodically throughout life. That the suffering that I've described in this message and that all of us have experienced in life is not a kind of suffering that's confined to one part of your life. It's not like you're living and your life is like a boat having smooth sailing, and then you encounter some rough, choppy waters and you worry about what's going to happen, but then the storm dissipates and it's smooth sailing once again. No, the word whenever suggests that all throughout life, because we live in a fallen world, we're going to encounter really one problem after another. Some of them are huge and some of them are small, but all of them are occasions for us to choose how we're going to respond. Are we going to choose to obey God's word and consider it joy, make an intentional act of our will to rejoice when we encounter these problems in life? Or are we going to revert to human nature when we encounter these problems in life? Is it going to be part of our pattern, part of our habit as people to make that switch in our minds, to accept in our will the command of God and therefore change intentionally our thinking about the problems we face in life? That's what's suggested by the word whenever. And following the word whenever, we come to this phrase, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, the word trials tells us a lot more about what I've been calling suffering or hard times in this message. Trials are tests. Trials are an opportunity to put your faith to the test, specifically. When we face problems in life, when we face hard times in life, Yes, we are encountering what is normal for humanity. It's part of living in a fallen world. But this verse tells us that each one of those problems is actually putting our faith to the test. That's developed more in verse 3, and we'll come to that in the next message. But in verse 3, James says, it's the trial of your faith that's going on when you encounter these problems in life. And this is why God commands Christians to look at trials differently, to to rejoice when we're in trial. Because God is doing something for us and in us when we encounter the trials of life. The trials that we face in life aren't just the price we pay for living as human beings in a fallen world. And the trials we face in life are certainly not God's punishments for us. Because God is sadistic and likes to hurt people. Not at all. 
No, the trials that we face in life, the problems, the suffering that we face in life, are allowed into our lives by a sovereign God who loves us and, because he loves us, wants our faith to get stronger. That's what trials do, and that's why we are supposed to rejoice. Trials reveal the quality of your faith. Whether it is weak faith that needs strengthening by the grace of God, whether it is strong faith that gets stronger through the trial, or whether it is no faith at all that turns away from Jesus in the moment of trial. That's what's revealed when we're suffering. Whether that suffering comes because you're a Christian or because you're human, it doesn't matter. All of it puts your faith in God to the test. And God addresses us and commands us to choose joy Because as we encounter those trials in life, it's an opportunity for him to strengthen our faith in him. To cause us to walk more closely with him. And So while the command to have joy in trials is a difficult command, it's hard to hear and it's really hard to obey. It's also really important. Because it reveals what's true or what's not true about our faith. And so that brings us to the final point, the final issue for this message, which is our big idea for today. And that is that joy in suffering is an intentional act of faith. Joy in suffering is an intentional act of faith. If I can get you to take anything away from this message, that's what I want you to take away from it. That you are not going to automatically feel joy when you encounter problems in your life. It's not going to happen automatically. But rather, if your faith is in Christ, if you are a brother and sister, as James says in verse 2, then every trial, every problem, every moment of suffering you face in life is a choice. Your response to it is a choice. You can either choose joy or you can choose unbelief or bitterness or any other kinds of normal human responses to problems in life. If you're a Christian, God commands you to choose joy. And what's missing in this verse is God himself. No, he's not really missing. His name is missing. When James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, in verse 2. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say when God allows trials of many kind to come into your life. He doesn't say that explicitly, but that's exactly what's happening. Behind this verse, and behind the verse that follows it, which we'll get to in the next message. But behind all of this stands a loving and sovereign God. One reason you can choose joy as an intentional act of faith is because God is behind all of the trials you face in life. Not that God 
brings them necessarily directly into your life. But rather as God, a God who is sovereign over all human events. God allows us to experience the hardships of being human in order to test our faith and in order to strengthen it by his grace. That's why we can choose joy. One story that illustrates this really well from the Old Testament is the story of the man named Job. The Bible tells us Job was a devout man of God. A man who walked with God, even in the Old Testament, where he had very little of God's revelation to him. But a man who walked with God like few of us, if any of us, do. And yet, for reasons unknown to him, he faced every kind of trial you could imagine. He faced financial hardships. He faced sorrow when his children were suddenly taken from him. And he faced relational hardships with a wife who told him to curse God and die, and with friends who told him, you need to repent of your sins. This happened because God's punishing you. Job faced every kind of trial there was. And what was unknown to him, but is known to us, because we have Job chapter 1, he didn't have it, is that Satan brought these problems into his life, but they but they were allowed by a sovereign God and only by the sovereignty of God. And so it is with your life and mine. God does not intentionally inflict problems on us, but he allows the, the problems of being human into our lives. But he does so for a specific purpose, and that's to strengthen you, to grow you. We'll talk about this more in the next message but it's an intentional act of faith to choose joy because you have to believe that God is doing something in your life. The only way you're going to rejoice, the only way you're going to experience joy and have joy when you encounter the problems and trials of life is if you believe that God is sovereign over it and that he's only allowing it into your life for a specific spiritual purpose. And so when you get the, the bad diagnosis, or you get the eviction papers in the mail, or you hear that someone you love is really sick, or someone you love is wandering away from Christ and doing sinful things, or whatever, when you hear these things, and the normal human reaction is to panic, to fear, to become angry, to lash out, remember that as a Christian, you now have a choice. You can have those normal human reactions, and all of us, even the best of us Christians, have them. But that's one option. Or the other option is to come to this command and say, Okay, Lord, I don't know why exactly this is happening, but I choose to believe you're doing something good in my life because of it. And therefore, I'm going to rejoice in the problems I face in life. Joy and suffering is an intentional act of faith. And when we talk about the book of James and what intentional acts of faith we're going to learn in this passage, we need to learn that joy and suffering is an intentional act of faith. I don't know what problems you're facing in your life. I don't know what areas you're suffering in. I don't know what struggles you're having with believing and obeying the command in this passage. But I do know by the grace of God, you can choose joy. 
but it's going to take an intentional act of faith.